Good morning, everyone. I am Simeon, and it's wonderful to see all of you here. Um, the theme of my sermon today is, uh, is a question. Who is the Holy Spirit? I'm leading off uh, a series that we're going to have here on the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, focusing on uh, especially 1 Corinthians chapters 12 to 14, some really classic texts on that subject. I'm pretty excited about this uh, sermon uh, title, partly because the first teaching I'm doing of the whole year tomorrow in the Faculty of Divinity is a two-hour seminar called On the Identity of the Holy Spirit. So um, this is sort of up my, up my alley. Um, Paul seems to think that before you can get to know, learn more about the gifts of the Spirit and what uh, the Spirit does, it's good to have a sense of who the Spirit is. And so in uh, two of our verses, he, he gives us gives us some insight. I'm going to reread the middle two verses. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. It seems to me that these verses tell us two basic but really fundamental things about the Holy Spirit, about who the Holy Spirit is. First, they tell us that the Holy Spirit is deeply connected to Jesus. And second, they tell us that the Holy Spirit is a living God rather than a mute idol. These are pretty simple ideas on the surface, but there's a lot of depth here, and I want to spend the rest of our time unpacking them. So, the first thing here is that somehow the Holy Spirit and Jesus are very deeply connected. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. To believe in Jesus, to know him and experience his presence and lordship, all of this is something that only the Holy Spirit can make happen, according to Paul. Now, I am a theologian, uh, as I've mentioned, um, and at this point there is a part of me that is very tempted to just do a deep dive into the doctrine of the Trinity which I'm sure would be really, um, uh, it would be wonderful, it would be great, and you would learn all sorts of things. Um, this passage raises a classic Christian question about the nature of God. How are the Spirit and the Son one God, and yet somehow still genuinely distinct? Early, the early church spent about four centuries uh, trying to work out the best answers to that question and why, why it was an important question. So um, this sort of question gets me very excited as a theologian, uh, and in fact, if you want to know more, you can, I'm giving eight hours of lectures on this exact topic over the next four weeks. Some of you, I think, are meant to be there. Um, <laughs> so if you want to know more about the technical, uh, the, the very exciting doctrine of the Trinity, um, come, come, come along. Um, sadly, however, this isn't usually the best way to have an engaging sermon to go into technical tr uh, terminology. But there is one insight, actually, from, from the, the centuries of discussion that I think is helpful here, that helps make sense of of what we're doing, of what we're talking about in this passage. There's a theologian about 100 years ago, very brilliant theologian who you probably haven't heard of, um, called Adolf von Harnack. And he wrote an essay called The Christ Who is Present. And his essay makes a very simple point that I think is one actually that's, that's, that's eternally kind of relevant. He was reading the Great Commission in Matthew 28, where at the end Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, after sending out the disciples, and, um, or in the process of doing so. And Adolf von Harnack asked, this, he said, this, question, this statement of Jesus 
urgently raises the question of how Jesus is present, even to the end of the age. Nice to say that he's present, but how? That became an urgent question for the early church and really for all Christians. And then he says the answer that the church seemed to come up with, and that broadly speaking is still pretty much the answer we, uh, you know, the, the, the scholars uh, agree on, is the that Jesus is present to us by the Holy Spirit. It was through experiences and encounters with the Holy Spirit that the church encountered the risen and ascended Christ in the period after the ascension. You might remember that the Spirit of God in Scripture is very often called the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus. That Romans and Philippians and 1 Peter and in Acts, I think, are all uh, examples of that. There's a, this very close connection. So if you want to know who the Holy Spirit is, then a good answer to that question is to say the Holy Spirit is the presence of the risen Christ in the lives of Christians today. So I think that's part of what Paul is getting at. That's why there is this close connection here in the passage and elsewhere. Um, one thing that this means is it doesn't mean, there is a bit of a tendency to think of sort of a person's relationship to God as really sort of with Jesus and maybe with sort of God in general, and then the Holy Spirit kind of comes in on the side and does sort of slightly interesting stuff uh, from time to time, but is sort of separate from that whole deal. And that's, this passage is saying, no, always the Holy Spirit who is encountered is the Spirit of Christ. These things are very closely connected in, in our experience of God. So I want to say a bit more about this in a minute, but first let's turn to the other big theme in the passage, the one that I think is very, very exciting, uh, the living reality of God. The second thing Paul tells us in our passage from 1 Corinthians is that the Holy Spirit is a living God, not a mute idol. What I think of here immediately, I was in Athens last summer for the first time. I sort of managed to get out briefly. Um, and we were in Athens, and uh, if you've ever been to the Parthenon, you might know that there used to be a giant, very famous statue of Athena called the Athena Parthenos, multimeters high, ivory and gold, one of the great one sort of uh, statues of the ancient world, and sadly it got lost at some point in antiquity. But that's sort of what I think of, a mute idol. Cool, you, know, you, can, you, could, you could pay to the idol, maybe. You could sacrifice the idol. You could look at the idol but it doesn't talk back. Paul is contrasting the Spirit of God with that kind of thing. The Christian God is not like the Athena Parthenos. The Christian God, Paul tells us, is a God who speaks, a God who is real, not just a God who is a, a metaphor or a um, set of sort of, the protagonist of a set of stories that are meaningful and beautiful but are distant from us. Um, he is that too. Uh, and for us theologians, the God is not all, just an idea to be dissected and debated about, um, analyzed from afar, judged and weighed from an attitude of disattachment. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, according to this passage, this contrast Paul is drawing between mute idols and the Holy Spirit of God, it means that what we're talking about with the Holy Spirit is the living reality of God in our lives today. A number of years ago, when I first moved to this town, I was writing a PhD on a guy named Christoph Blumhart, who even theologians often haven't heard of, but who was extremely interesting and cool. And uh, he, when he came to university, um, he went to study theology because he was going to be a vicar. And uh, he wrote back to his parents um, in, from his theology course at the University of Tübingen. Um, he'd probably been listening to lectures a lot like the ones I'm, well, in theory, lectures a lot like the ones I'm going to be giving in the next few weeks, but but, but much more boring. 
Um, so he said this to his parents. He said, when I hear the gentleman philosophizing about God like that, I often think, if you really knew whom you were talking about and whom you were analyzing, you would turn white as a sheet. When he's saying that, you would turn white as a sheet. He's talking about the disconnect sometimes between kind of the idea of God, even for Christians, and, and the sense of the reality. What if this were really really real. Uh, there's something extremely intense about that idea that we can't quite handle for long periods of time, I think. So when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about uh, an idea, but a living agent, the God who holds life and death in his hand, the God who knew you before you were born, who knows the name of your future children, who knows the day when you will die. These are realities that are relevant uh, to us, and they are, this is, this is, this is the belief. The Christian God is no dead statue, the living God who's here and everywhere right now. That's all well and good. These words are relatively easy to say. Uh, if you are a Christian, they're probably relatively easy to agree with. God is alive. God is real. I'm not just making all this up. Um, God makes himself present to us through the Holy Spirit. These are all things that you can affirm relatively straightforwardly as a Christian, but reflecting on the passage over the last few weeks, um, I've just been struck partly sort of in myself and just in general, I, I think it's really hard to really believe that at some level. There's a, there's a, there's, there is often disconnect between uh, this, the, the sense of the living reality of God that's not a mute idol that Paul is talking about and, and how we experience uh, or, or think about God. And so I, I have a, a, top, a typology. I thought there are different ways of sort of in which our disconnect from that reality can for different forms it can take. One is the person who just isn't a Christian, who just, you know, they don't believe in the, you know, the, the real, living reality of God because why would they? They're not a Christian, you know. Um, and so for that kind of person, the question of the living reality of God is a sort of a straightforward one. It's sort of like, well, um, you know, turn the question, who is the Holy Spirit to? Who are you, Holy Spirit? There is a kind of way of stepping out towards that as a possibility. Um, I think of uh, when I was about 10 years old, I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in the theaters, and it stuck with me forever. And there's this wonderful part of it towards the end. It's very kind of on the nose in retrospect, but it's still great, uh, where you know, Indiana Jones has to get through all these, it's like a temple or a cave, and he's trying to get the Holy Grail, but he has to pass through various obstacles, and one of them, if you've seen it, is um, he enters, he gets sort of through this doorway, and then there's a giant chasm. It's maybe sort of 10 meters across or something. Deep, dark, you can't see the bottom. And on the other side is the door. And he, he's like, what do I do? But he has this journal, this book from his dad, uh, played by Sean Connery, who uh, tells him what to do to get through various obstacles. And here, the book seems to be saying, you just have to step out into the chasm and trust, basically trust the book. And, um, and so after sort of, you know, some anxiety, he steps out and he lands on an invisible bridge. His, his faith is rewarded. He steps out in faith and there, uh, and, and in fact, there was a bridge. He just couldn't see it. It's a, okay, you get the image. So for a non-Christian, I think that's sort of, that's what the Holy Spirit, that's the question the Holy Spirit sort of raises. You know, maybe you're here, there's a, you've heard this kind of rumor of, of forgiveness or of healing or of meaning or of just the reality of, of some kind of reality and you're interested. Um, I always think about this term, 
uh, when you read old theology, the cure of souls. Ministry used to be called the cure of souls. And uh, the idea of soul sickness, that there might be a, uh, a place to go with soul sickness. So that's one way to sort of be oriented to this living reality of God. Another one would be the comfortable Christian, uh, the Christian who just kind of gets on with it, knows the right answers in, in Bible study, um, has, I don't know, Christian friends, does, does all the right kind of thing, uh, but has a slightly, but it's all gotten kind of, kind of normalized. It's not very, uh, it's just, it's helpful, it's good, but it's not, somehow maybe you've subtly started to, to rub the rough edges off the edge. Somehow your Christianity, your faith is, is not really capable of making you unsettled or uncomfortable or of taking uh, you into places that you are not, um, that you need to go but are, are, are resistant about. Um, there's a kind of safe Christianity, I guess. And here, uh, again, the reality of the Holy Spirit is sort of, is this, is to say, well, what if, what if the Spirit might take me somewhere I'm not expecting, somewhere new, somewhere uncomfortable but also exciting. Then there's another kind of Christian who I think has sort of put up walls a little bit against really taking seriously the living reality of, of God. And sometimes this is from being hurt. Maybe you still say, I still believe, I still go, but, but maybe you feel that God has let you down in some way, or you're angry, or, or you have doubts, and you just kind of don't want to deal because uh, it's uncomfortable. And um, that is, uh, you just sort of feel distant from God. And that's another place, you know, the Paul says this, the spirit is not a mute idol, that, um, that God is one who speaks back, and maybe it's the, the way to engage the spirit is to bring any anger or doubt or disappointment or just hurt that you have that is keeping you uh, just a little bit distant and, and you know, basically talk to God about it. Behind each of these sort of phenomena, which I recognize all of in different ways in myself, um, I think are, are forms of fear. We find subtle ways to shield ourselves from the living reality of God, from the living spirit, because we're afraid of what might happen, afraid of what we might be called to, or afraid of what might, might be called to give up, or afraid uh, just of losing control um, in some way, or of being disappointed. And there is a sense in which this kind of, these fears are not totally unfounded. You know, if you put your life in the hands of the living God, uh, you're leaving known comforts. You're leaving the promise of control behind to whatever degree. One of the things we're told about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is that the Spirit blows where it wills. In John 3, verse 8, there's a freedom to the Spirit. You never quite know what's going to happen. There's something unexpected, and, and that's fresh, it's exciting, but also scary about this. I think this, that dynamic of the Spirit, the sort of fearfulness of, of, of the encounter uh, of, with the reality of God has been brought, uh, was brought out brilliantly in a, in a play that I really love by T.S. Eliot. T.S. Eliot, you probably know as the poet, he also wrote a lot of plays. Uh, one of them is called The Cocktail Party, and it's amazing. And um, in this play, there are basically a couple of characters whose lives are not going very well. Who, uh, there's a, a married couple who are, whose marriage is falling apart, so there's an affair. There's another woman who's involved in the affair, and she's really, um, her life feels very meaningless, and she's lost in various ways. So there's this cocktail party, and somehow this stranger comes to the cocktail party. Um, and no one knows who he is. But at the end, one of the characters, at the end of the party, everyone's leaving, then one of the characters says, hey, why don't you just stay? I, I sort of want to talk to someone. So he invites this stranger to stay. And then they start having this conversation, and what you discover over the course of the play is that the stranger is basically the agent of God 
in the lives of these characters. The stranger has come to take them out of their, where they are, which is not a good place and where they're stuck, and really to bring salvation to them in particular ways, but not in the ways they expect. And so uh, at some point the conversation goes a little bit, the guy's like, this is getting a little too intense. Um, why are you telling me all this stuff? And the stranger says this. He says, to approach the stranger is to invite the unexpected, to release a new force. It is to let the genie out of the bottle and to start a train of events beyond your control. When the Holy Spirit of God comes into a situation, it starts a train of events. Uh, and what happens in the cocktail party is that um, their lives turn sort of upside down. The married couple, it ends up, it's, it becomes the healing of their marriage. It becomes the thing they need. And, um, and they become much happier and they're, they're sort of saved from their situation. But for the other person who was equally saved, she is basically called, you know, in the, in the terms of the play, to, to sort of sainthood. She's called to mission. Uh, to go out somewhere, and then to martyrdom. And that is the unsettling, you know, he says, to, to, to invite the spirit in, invite the stranger in, is to start a train of events beyond your control. But it's, it, it, it is, it's her salvation too, but it's not necessarily what you would, you, know, you would expect. It's a brilliant play, and I recommend it to you. And it shows how if you approach the stranger, if you approach the Holy Spirit, you never know quite what's going to happen. This sort of sounds a little bit kind of bleak, like, oh, great, I get to be totally unsettled and possibly become a martyr or something. I mean, that, I know it sounds a little bit kind of negative. Um, there is something that makes this not quite like that, actually, and it goes back to the first point. To feel afraid of, of God, of the reality of God and what might happen if you let that reality sort of in uh, is it helps to realize that this Holy Spirit is not a random force or a force of arbitrariness, but it's the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit has a particular shape and character that is not arbitrary, even if it's not in our control. We're talking about the Spirit of Jesus Christ, of Jesus of Nazareth. So the one you're seeking when you dare to leave some place you've known, the one you're trusting when you call upon the Holy Spirit to take the reins from you, is the same one who loved the lepers and the sinners, who healed the sick, who sought out the little children, who forgave his enemies. He's the one who is lowly and humble and whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. So it's unsettling, but it's also deeply safe. We're gonna have a little bit of sort of ministry time in a minute, so I guess what I would just leave you with is this sense of Wait, what if this God were really real, sort of right now, this reality of God, not a mute idol, a God who speaks, a God who acts? Are you the person who needs to step out uh, into the chasm uh, in some way? Is there some step of faith that you are being called to? Is there some comfort zone that you're being called out of into something you didn't fully expect and that is sort of both exciting and terrifying? Or is there some pain or problem that you need to bring to, to this living spirit, uh, that you need, to, you need to do some business kind of with God in that way, um, some disappointment that you're holding on to, some doubt or, or, or concern or just feeling of alienation from God. Uh, 
I encourage you to, to bring that to God um, in prayer. You can do it up front. Um, and uh, whichever of those things you are, um, I think we'll all be able to pray, come Holy Spirit.